Okay. It's not a great episode. But at least we've moved up in quality substantially, right? There's some weirdness about this one, though. And I'm not sure what to call it, other than just there's this kind of weird awkwardness to a lot of the episodes. The ideas and concepts within are really cool, and in fact, I totally appeal to me, but most of the time I was just looking at it going... Um, this was an episode by DC Fontana, directed by Pebney, and starring Catwoman. I actually don't have much to say behind the scenes, although I want to comment on something. I meant to comment on this in Errand of Mercy, and I completely spaced doing this, so apologies. It's funny how they couldn't un seem to come to a consensus on how to pronounce Klingon. I actually did a little looking into that and the nature of Klingon production. It turns out that they really hated the word Klingon. Like It, it just sounded awful. Now, I, I can't speak to that. I, the word has been part of my lingo since I was four. So it's really normalized by now, which is something funny. You can normalize just about any word as long as you use it sincerely and repeat it repetitively enough. It'll just become part of your linguistics. But... They really hated it, and I'm wondering if that's part of why they keep changing how different actors pronounce it. Because that's what it is. It's Each actor tends to have their own little thing. The biggest one is Klingon, as in if you were to remove the O, so just Klingon. And then some people, like Shatner, for example, flat out say Klingon and really emphasize the aw. Although Shatner has interesting pronunciations in general. You think I'm bad. Holy crap. Uh, I mean, obviously everyone knows about sabotage, but he's been doing several instances throughout the series where he'll just pronounce a word and I'm like, okay. I know. No one to, I'm not one to judge, right? So they go down to a pre-industrial society of people who live in huts to trade with them for their resources because they need the resources and they need to ensure that their enemies, the Klingons, don't get a hold of them. Gosh, that sounds a lot like a proxy situation. Uh, you might even say it's a bit of a Truman Doctrine, a.k.a. the exact opposite of the Prime Directive as originally intended. Huh. That's, um... <sighs> Normally I'd complain about that, but actually it makes so much sense that I can't. You'll notice the claim, with very few exceptions, there's no declaration of war between the Klingons and the Federation. The Kling There's no real violation of the treaty here. Not really. There's Most of the stuff that comes close is the Romulan, sorry, the Klingon on the planet, which I'll get to in a minute. So that actually lines up, because that's the whole point of the proxy battle, right? You're not actually fighting your enemy, so the war doesn't go hot, and we don't devastate the galaxy, and the Organians don't wake up and start smashing our faces in. But... We could still exert pressure and try to move against the enemy. You also notice this is the second super rare mineral that is not dilithium that we need in large numbers in order to power our ships and our life support systems. We had pergium and now it's, um, I didn't write it down. Copaline or something? Copaline? Topaline? Something like that. It doesn't matter. It's another, you know, hey, we need it. I, I don't mind. I'm just commenting on it. It's interesting how. This episode has all to do with that kind of resources and politicking and proxy battle, though. And, again, most of that is just inferred rather than stated outright in the episode. Which goes back to what I mentioned earlier about the presentation just being off. Does anybody else get that vibe? Is that just me? I mean, no judgment. I'm just curious. I just got finished having three separate people tell me that my opinion on something, which I'm not going to tell you what it was, is, is terrible and awful, and they can't even understand how I could think that way. 
And I've kind of discovered that that's just sort of life, right? Sometimes you're just going to say your opinion honestly and openly, and people are going to be like, no, you're just wrong. <sighs> so Kirk complains because his red shirt got killed that he brought along who he was youthful and inexperienced, and now he's super dead. Why? Why is that seen in this? Other than to kill a redshirt to prove the situation, is this literally a proving the situation series? Actually, a decent number of Capellans die. The Klingon dies, but that's it. It just seems like a weird, out of place thing, especially for the start of the thing. I guess the whole point was the Klingons. Okay, you know what? I'm going to walk that back. I'm actually okay with it because not because of the redshirt death, which is totally unnecessary, but for the reintroduction of the Klingons. This is actually the first time this has happened in Trek history. So that's another first. A recurring villain. Now, we knew that was going to happen, right? We know, historically speaking, the Klingons will be back. But this is actually the first time it happens. Uh, they could have just been another one-off villain. And remember, the Romulans haven't shown up again yet either. They're, they're still a one-off villain as of this moment in history. But the Klingons have now recurred. And they are the very first. It's just fascinating to think about it sometimes. Sorry for repeating myself so much. We also have another first. The first jerk-ass race. There's these guys, the Kratassins. And I can't believe I remember that. It's over on Enterprise. Who are just way too finicky about everything. And the, the Enterprise encountered them several times in Season 2. I think it was Season 2? Yeah. Dear, Do Dear Doctor? No, A Night in Sickbay. A Night in Sickbay was one of the episodes. Not the only one. But I bring this up because one of the things that tends to happen, especially in early TNG, I mentioned the whole doormat diplomacy, which bothers me. Part of the reason for that is because the aliens which we are being diplomatic towards are just enough dickish that they're basically forcing you to be doormats in order to, to, to cow town to them. You do everything I say and do it exactly how I say it, and I might grace you with my technology, uh, resources, uh, you know, help, whatever, whatever uh, vaccine to go with code of honor, whatever it is that they've got, right? I think this is our first race that's like that, which is funny because they turn less aggravating as the episode goes on, but at the beginning, they're, they're just another jerk-ass race. So then... Um... Oh... Can't understand my own tiny. I actually had very few notes on this one because most of the ideas are just concepts that the episode doesn't really address. There's one scene which actually kind of irritates me, where a woman comes in and McCoy's like, in a very calm voice, she's giving here she her gift has been received as a gift of friendship, and Kirk's like, oh, thank you, and then McCoy's like, wait, no, don't. If you do that, you'll accept offer for combat. McCoy, I know you're not a trained diplomat. Could you have led with that? Just just a thought. Next time, if I were about to shove my hand into a giant pit of manure and, and fling it at the queen, because, uh, just bear with me for a second, and, I'm, and, and you, maybe you should say that's a bad idea before you just kind of casually lean me towards saying, oh yeah, she loves having crap all over her face. Whatever. We find out, then we have a weird scene that's actually really good. It's probably my favorite scene in the episode. It's the politics scene, because of course it is. We've got uh, Aka'ar, he's the current tier, the high tier, excuse me, of the 15 clans, I think it was, 15 chiefs, something like that. Then we have Mob, Mob, he's the main, uh, I don't know what to call him. 
We'll call him Mob. He's the Mob. No, not that one. And he reacts to this, and there's this whole ceremony thing, and the Klingon knows how to work with it, but... Oh, uh, O'Brien, wow. <laughs> McCoy... Where did O'Brien come from? I'm getting tired. McCoy just kind of, you know, manages to work through it and shows that he actually is a better diplomat, although maybe that's just because of his knowledge of the people. I'm curious why McCoy, of all people, was assigned to this mission to begin with, by the way. I mean, I get it. The idea is that he will be the one who gets close to her so that he has the connection to, what was it, Leonard James Akaar, I think was the full name. But anyways, it's a good scene. And it made me think something. These people are Klingons. No, seriously, culturally speaking, look at them and how they operate. They've got this whole ritualistic thing, which is warrior-focused, and they have this obsession with death, and there's certain things you're allowed to do and certain things you're not, and if you do something you're not allowed to do, your life is forfeit. And notice that, and this is more true with her, uh, who we haven't even met her yet, uh, L-E-N, and to make sure I pronounce that correctly, in a pronunciation guide this time, L-E-N, you know, Catwoman, she respects McCoy more after he flat-out slaps her, which normally I would just kind of go, at. But in this case, it actually totally lines up, so you can go ahead and quote me that completely out of context. Low Runner is totally okay with McCoy slapping a pregnant woman. Go ahead, you're going to do it anyways. <laughs> but the context, which is so ever-critical here, is the fact that it was him establishing... It, it was him being Klingon. Because, again, Klingons are all about how you react and what you do to react. So she was like, no, you cannot touch me. And he's like, I've got to do my job. So she smacks him, and then she smacks him, and then he smacks her back. I'm doing this. Puts the hand on her belly to, to you know, provide medical aid. It's worth noting that there is no disrespect in his action. In fact, if anything, what she, he is doing is standing up for himself, displaying a degree of emotional as well as physical um, I don't want to say dominance, that's the wrong word. It's more like just straight-up strength. By showing that position, she then respects him and then starts to t consider him to be acceptable. And culturally speaking, effectively slots him in as her new husband so that it then fits in with her, her worldview, so that she can adapt in her own way. It's kind of cool and interesting and very cultural the way they do it. Credit to Fontana for this whole political, cultural thing we got going on. It's, it's, like I said, it's one of the better parts of the episode. Um, we have a coup. No! And this... <laughs> this is actually a fun one. Because the Klingon has this whole deal that he already arranged with, with uh, Mob. But then Kirk's like, you know what you could do instead? You could have us fight. And what I like about this is the high tier that he is now, because he just took over the tribe is like, okay, you know what, I'll consider it. Then something kind of strange happens. There's this bit where Catwoman comes in, Elian. She's, she's decently well done, but there's a little bit of histrionics in her presentation, which is just kind of eh. But she comes in and is about to be cut down in front of them. They disallow it and disarm most of the guards, but fail at the full attempt. She then insists that they must die before she dies, then we cut to the Enterprise, talk about that in a second. Then we cut back, and they're just still hanging around the camp, just kind of chilling. I get the idea that the execution has been scheduled. I'm just wondering, given that they were about to stab her on the spot, why they don't stab Kirk on the spot when he's under, literally under their swords. I mean, we know why, it's so he lives. But it's, it's, it's always bugged me how they just kind of jump away, jump back, and the execution thing is basically forgotten. It's brought up one more time, and then they go forward with the escape. 
I said I'd talk about the the ship cutaway thing. I actually like the B-plot. Unfortunately, as I've already mentioned, this is not the first B-plot in Star Trek history. It's, that's already a thing that's happened. In many ways, I find the B-plot more well-presented than the A-plot, if less intellectually engaging. Scotty, Uhura, Sulu, and Chekhov basically playing with the Klingon, which is playing with them. Notice they never actually go to the point of shooting at each other. They never actually engage in overt combat, because again, that treaty's still there. This goes back to that whole idea. If you have, let's just call it what it is, a Russian battleship, and it's, it's trying to prevent ingress from a American battleship, and the American battleship is like, no, I'm not stopping. Well, who's, who's flinching first? Especially in this case where the American battleship is specifically trying to get to some American troops, who the Russian battleship is trying to prevent the, the access to. I mean, that, that is effectively the scenario we have here. And so there's some undercurrent tension of this kind of, uh, this game that the two are playing. And I love how Scotty is once again wonderfully competent when it comes to being a commander. Because check this out. He heads out. He, he, he waits a moment, double checks first, and then he decides, okay, this is high enough priority. It's a distress call. This is high enough priority. We're going to go deal with this right freaking now. Just showing up and waving the flag might be enough to save that freighter because of the treaty. So we'll head out there at warp five, which is pretty fast. Not super fast. You know, seven and eight are still the cap, but five is still fast. We head there. We start scanning. We don't detect anything. Now that's already suspicious. What does Scotty do? Turn around and rush right back? No, he does his due diligence as a commander and starts making absolutely sure, trying to reestablish contact, doing a search pattern and looking for any debris just to verify whether or not the freighter is there at all or has been destroyed. Then, when he starts to suspect it is actually a trap, he plays back the message where it flat out mentions Enterprise. They specifically called for Enterprise, and he deduces from that, quite correctly, that it is a trap. Notice he still doesn't turn around, which is still correct, because, as is pointed out, that's not concrete evidence. It could still just be a, a misunderstanding, or, a, or you know, they just happen to know that Enterprise is here. So just to be sure, he goes ahead and continues scanning for a little bit longer before finally being okay, turn back around. The moment they turn back around, there's another distress call. This one's better crafted, of course, but Scotty by this point is not dealing with it. By the way, another first. He mentions, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And Chekhov says, ah, oh, we know this. It was invented in Russia. That is the first time Chekhov has claimed ownership of a saying or a concept of Russia, which will be a very long-standing running gag, so much so that it ends up even in Star Trek VI. That, that's how long that gag goes. Maybe you've heard of the Russian epic of Cinderella. Anyways. So, the Scotty stuff is awesome. And it's good to see the rest of the cast. Remember what I mentioned last time. Actually seeing the rest of the cast doing something is good. And I do like the actors being able to, to do something. Now, in an ideal world, we'd have kind of a DS9 situation where even the, the non-main characters would get episodes devoted to them. We'll get a couple of those in the future. Uh, Chekhov will get one in Apple, I think. Uh, Scotty gets one in um, the Jack the Ripper episode. I'm not sure if Sulu ever gets one. I'm not sure if Uhuru gets one either. But something, you know? It, it, it's, it's something. Anyways, back on the planet, uh, 
the Klingon Cross, Crass? I don't actually remember how he says his name, and I don't actually care, because he's basically a Romulan. You caught that, right? For all the Capellans and their presentation culturally as Klingons, he is pretty much straight up being an undermining, manipulative weasel in his approach, trying to use technicalities and trying to maneuver through the, the confines of the law in order to try and make things happen, and when he fails at it, getting upset and pissy about it. Also, throughout the course of the episode, he gets more and more upset at this situation because of how irritating it is having to hunt down the Enterprise crew, that is to say, the, the core trio, whereas Mob, by contrast, in a very Klingon mentality, earns more, gains more and more respect for them for how much they've been able to, to put them on this chase despite having no weapons and no resources. Now, I'm not crying foul, to be clear. There are plenty of Klingons that are not very Klingon. This is, in fact, one of the main points that will be brought up constantly in Klingon politics when the TNG era happens, that there are plenty of Klingons who are very dishonorable and don't actually operate under their cultural norms, right? That's why I have that whole spiel I've talked about constantly about fake honor versus real honor. Heck, that came up in Ghost of Tsushima, for God's sakes. So... I'm not complaining per se. This guy on his own, without any other Klingons to pose or preen for, is basically just letting the mask down and revealing himself to be the snivelly little guy that he is. I'm with that. It's just interesting because, well, I mean, you you, you bothered to have him be here. He's the only Klingon of the show. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. So, Elyon, uh this is when Elyon has her scene with McCoy, and she will only allow his touch. He's the only one allowed to touch her in order to help her forward. Okay. There's also this bit where she mentions the child belongs to the husband, and McCoy's response to that is poppycock. Is that what they're telling you? It's worth noting this was written by DC Fontana. I only point that out because I'm not sure that a male writer at this point in history would have written that line as is. That is not a complaint, by the way. I agree, the idea that the child belongs to the husband is kind of nonsensical from multiple angles. He's involved, certainly, but to, to be the sole owner, that's nonsense. Which, of course, leads to the idea that McCoy is now the husband, and thus, in her worldview, it's acceptable for the child to be McCoy's. You'll notice what she does immediately after this. She allows McCoy to give the birth, and then effectively ensures that McCoy will be left behind with the child, and then gets up and leaves to come back in order to, to die, basically, in order to kill herself and end her particular political threat to things. But in so doing, she has ensured not only that the party will live, but that her child will live. She is, in short, sick of being a manipulated pawn, and so starts move, moving on the board herself, which is interesting. And I really wish they'd dig more into that, because she has a fascinating character arc that some of which isn't even on camera. By the end of the episode, she will be regent, which is the de facto leader until the person who actually is on the throne is considered old enough to run things themselves. A very, very common aspect here in real-life politics back in the day. I don't know if that really happens anymore. So, that's awesome. The arc from I am nothing but a tool to I am a pawn, useful to others, to I can move myself on the board to I am now the regent in charge of this is a fascinating arc that we barely see any of. And you see what I mean now about interesting concepts that aren't really developed? Funnily enough, several ancillary works, including STO, actually continue forward with the idea of Leonard James Aka'ar and his 
continued efforts with regards to uh, building stronger connections between the Capellans and the Federation, as well as you know all sorts of other fun stuff. As a quick aside, many, many, many times in t- in season one, especially, they would meet well humans who have absolutely no makeup, and they wouldn't even bother to give them a name or pretend that they're alien. You'll notice that trend has slowly been shifting away. I think Taste of Armageddon is probably one of the earlier episodes that started getting across the idea that the people who are not in makeup are, in fact, not human. And that's continuing here. They actually started taking very small efforts. The Capellans had the hat things, and they had shoes with little platforms on them to make them seem taller to try and make them seem less human, even though there's no makeup and no no effects involved. Just, just cool stuff. I suppose I shouldn't say no effects, I just mentioned two effects. You get what I mean. I am curious of something, though. Why? I I just gave my opinion on it. You'll notice we don't actually get her actual answer to this. So why do you think she goes to turn herself in? I gave my my opinion on it, my my theory on why she does it. Why do you think she does it? Because there's plenty of uh, perfectly viable answers here. I heard one person once posit the idea that she just really didn't give a damn about the child and just wanted to go back and die, which is something that she had been prevented from doing. So screw it, I'm done. What do you think? Either way, the episode kind of comes to a conclusion. There's this nice bit where the Klingon, or the Klingon, if you prefer, gets hold of a phaser and just starts killing people because he's a, he's a snivelly little bastard. There's this nice bit where Kirk and Spock are talking about, you know, there's no real hope of rescue. So what do we do? There's only one thing I want. The Klingon? Revenge? Why not? And it's an interesting thing. You notice Spock doesn't even disagree with it because... Both of them have accepted that they are dead. They do not have the power or the materials or the anything to hold off the Capellans en masse. So, okay, let's go ahead and get one thing done before we leave. And that is killing the Klingon. Interesting, although, of course, they don't end up doing it. The Capellans do, thanks to Mob, of all people, who, in true Klingon fashion, actually sacrifices himself to enable his fellows to kill the Klingon. Interesting. So then Scotty shows up, being a boss like he is, saves the party, rescues the situation, and then we have Gucci Gucci Goo. McCoy is awesome. We find out about the region thing. That's that the episode is already winding up. The end. Like I said, kind of kind of hampered, but still good. I liked this one. I hope you liked this one. I'll see you next time.